You might have heard the phrase, in fact, I'm sure you have heard the phrase, never meet your heroes. Um, and and it, this might sound strange, but Aaron, who we're about to meet in this story, is a little bit of a hero of mine. Um, and we're, we're, we're going to find that actually he doesn't quite live up to our expectations. And I'm not really sure why Aaron would be my hero. Um, perhaps it's because he's the older brother of Moses. He's seen as the wise and eloquent one. And I like to think of myself as the wise and eloquent older brother to my little brother who's much, much taller than me. Um, it might be because in the first part of the Exodus book, we see Aaron portrayed quite well, actually, I think. He's in uh, Egypt with the Israelites, and he's kind of battling with, Mero, uh, with Pharaoh alongside Moses um, and, and trying to lead them out of Egypt. So he's portrayed in a good light there, I think. And it also might be because I spent some time uh, in my childhood doing musicals every year with my church, and one year I got to play Aaron, and for some reason, I, I kind of loved that. Um, it was lots of fun. We, we, we did them every year, as I said. One, one year, I got to play God when we did Noah. And so I spent lots of time singing about the flood and the rain and the destruction of the people. That was great. Um, we'll, I think we'll see a little bit more of that later, actually. Uh, one, year, one year, we did Joseph, and I got to play Joseph. That was fantastic. And then, for some reason, Aaron, of all of the characters that I played, I, I really loved. And so since then, he's been a little bit of a hero. Um, but as we see in this, in this chapter, he kind of lets us down a bit. It's, it's disappointing almost to meet him. Last week, Duncan covered chapter 24, where Israel enters into a new covenant with God. And he likened it to a marriage ceremony. That's an analogy that I think is really helpful and we'll come back to later. But we get this picture of them being joined together at this ceremony. And we, we see the ceremony happen, and then we see, if you like, the wedding breakfast, where they have their, their food and they drink, and their drink. Um, and, and as the scene closes, as it were, they, they have their speeches and, and their toasts, and then Moses is pulled aside by God, and he wants to have a chat. Quite a long chat, actually, it turns out. Moses is invited up the mountain for 40 days. Um, and so there are seven chapters of Moses receiving the law. And, and he covers things like the Ten Commandments, which are carved on stone tablets. He covers sacrifice and, his, as, and the rules for how to sacrifice. There's instructions for building the tabernacle. There's instructions for the priests and what they're supposed to wear. And it goes on, as I say, for seven chapters. And we're going to pick up in Exodus 32. If you like, this is the, the honeymoon period. Aaron has been left in charge while Moses is up the mountain. If anything happens, the, the people are supposed to go to him for leadership. And really, you would think that everything would be going great. But if you've read the story of the golden calf before, you'll know that things are actually about to go really very wrong very, very quickly. So I'm going to start by reading the, the first 14 verses, and then we'll come back to the, the last bit towards the end. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster and he, that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So just 40 days after this marriage ceremony, the, the covenant has been formed, and then 40 days later, it has been broken. The people have demanded that Aaron make them a god who would go before them. They have the audacity to, to say that when they have been led into the land that they're in by a pillar of fire in the nighttime and a pillar of cloud in the daytime. They already have a god who has gone before them, but apparently that's not enough for them. They've decided to take things into their own hands. If, if you like, they're attempting to solve what they perceive as the lack of God's presence with a cow. Which, when you put it like that, does sound pretty ridiculous. And, and so they make this statue, they, they have a feast, uh, and they bring offerings to it. This is scandalous. This is clearly a violation of the covenant that they've made just 40 days previously. What went wrong? How, how did we get here? where the Israelites have, have gone so far astray so quickly. Well, I think this seems to be the first time that Moses has gone away for quite so long. You know, we see in the way that they're talking, they're, they're not really sure what has happened to him. And, and perhaps they feel like he has abandoned them. And I think given that they mostly heard through God at this time, from God at this time through Moses that perhaps they felt like God had abandoned them as well. We also need to remember that Egypt was a pagan nation, and so they'd spent generations in a, in a land that worshipped idols, and it probably was completely normalized for them. And so this idea that God has given them of being anti-idol is, is totally new. Having said that, the, the, the idea of them being abandoned is, is actually pretty ridiculous when we, when we start to think about it. That very morning, the people would have risen up from their beds 
and collected manna from the ground to eat, which was God's provision of food for them every day. They had not been abandoned. And if we look at Aaron specifically, as I said, never meet your heroes, but we, I feel like he could have done better. He's, he's the one who's been left in charge. But I'm, I'm going to try and give him the benefit of a doubt and, and see what was going on. If we, if we look at that first encounter, the, the Hebrew phrase that we have translated here is the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Uh, it's used elsewhere in the Bible, but it's translated slightly differently. Uh, in Numbers 16, verse 3, it, the same phrase is translated as they came as a group to oppose. That sounds a little bit more sinister, doesn't it? It, it seems perhaps more likely, given the, the phrasing and the words that they're using, that they came as a group against Aaron, rather than just coming around him for advice and leadership. They've, they've come to complain, to demand. And Aaron perhaps just feels a little bit of pressure, and so he, he is led into this compromise, if you like. Oh, well, well, maybe if we just make a statue that, that represents God. Maybe, maybe he feels like that is less serious. And I think we've got some more bits to kind of support that argument. Um, the, the, the language that they use when, when, the, when the statue is made, the, these are your gods, O Israel, who took you out of the land of Egypt. It's evidently not true of the statue they've just made. So perhaps they think it represents God somehow. And if we compare um, with Duncan's passage from last week in, in chapter 24, we'll see some similarities in Aaron's behavior. He, he starts by building an altar before the statue, which is exactly what Moses did at the beginning of the ceremony in chapter 24. He, he tells the people to bring burnt offerings and peace offerings to the altar, which is exactly what Moses did in chapter 24. And, and finally, he declares a feast to the Lord uh, and the people eat and drink in the presence of the statue, which is exactly what happens at the end of the message that we heard last week. The people eat and drink in the presence of God. And so we seem to have this bizarre imitation of the true worship of God. And, and it's interesting, even, even as uh, Moses is at the top of the mountain getting instructions for what worship is supposed to look like at the tabernacle, we've got this imitation. It's almost like a a perverse um, worship of an idol. It, it, it's an imitation, it's an alternative form of worship. But as I said, it's, it's perverse and it's wrong and it's, it's, it's not quite hit the mark. They've broken the divine covenant. Their intentions maybe were good, but they were not worshipping God in a way that had been instructed to them. They should have been waiting on Moses and worshipping God on, on his terms. But what they were actually doing, I think, really, when it comes down to it, is they were choosing to worship God on their terms. And I think that's something we can perhaps relate to. You know, we can, I think we can take two messages from that. The, the first is, I think most of us have never worshipped a metal statue. However, we do have a tendency to, to strive after created things and allowing them to distract us from our God, who created us. We, we have a habit of indulging in a, in a worldly culture that surrounds us 
and allowing that to influence our decisions, just as we see with the Israelites, that the culture that had surrounded them for so long has clearly influenced their behavior here. And the second thing, as I said, is I think we like to worship God on our terms, just as the Israelites do. Tim Chester, one of the commentators on this passage, I think puts it really helpfully. He says, we may not worship calf statues, but we are not immune from idolatry. Our desire for created things eclipses our desire for God. And, and certainly for me, that is something I can relate to. I, I find myself often desiring material possessions, and, and I have to catch myself to, to make sure that I'm not you know, longing for those things more than I long for time with God. Um, recently, I turned 30, and uh, for, for one of my, my presents, my, my parents and my brother were very kindly clubbed together and bought me a guitar. And, and for me, this was a big deal. I was very excited about my guitar. Um, and I've probably talked to several of you about my guitar for maybe too long already. Um, and, and I have to catch myself, right? I've got to be really careful that my desire for this guitar, for this thing that was created by man, does not eclipse my desire for God. There's nothing wrong with guitars. They're quite nice. But I need to be careful. And I think the pursuit of things that are made by human hands, when put in these terms, does seem foolish. But we need to be careful they're not distracting us from the living God who created us. I find it elsewhere as well. I find that I chase after the approval and the attention and the love of other people. I have to fight my desire to have more money and more things and more possessions and more guitars. <laughs> perhaps for you, you can relate to that. Perhaps, perhaps you find yourself chasing after certain statuses and positions at work. Perhaps it's chasing after certain experiences that you want to enjoy and allowing them to take over your life. And, and you've got no room for God. Just as Aaron made the cow, I think we, we would kind of like to reshape God into an image that better suits us, that, that fits in within our, within our culture, that, that is one that we have chosen. And we forget that we are the ones who are made in his image. And... and Basically, we just need to come to him and worship him on his terms. He is the one who is eternal. He is the one who said, I am who I am. And quite frankly, he is to be worshipped as such, as he is. And sometimes that can be tricky, because that includes worshipping God who is judge, as well as the God who is merciful. How does he react to the idolatry of the people? Well, we read that he burned hot with anger and with jealousy. In fact, God was so angry that he basically tells Moses to go away and let me consume the people. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them out and start again with you. That is, that is the offer that he basically makes. I'm going to, Moses, I'm going to turn you into the new patriarch. Forget about Abraham. I'm going to start again with you. He is so angry. And he's ready to start again. And I think when we read about God being angry in the Bible, we find that difficult. I know I do. And, and so perhaps we, we should start by trying to figure out why he is so angry. And so we're going to go back to the marriage ceremony analogy that Duncan brought up last week. It's so helpful here. It helps us to see why 
he is so angry. If you like, what has happened is the couple has got married, they've gone away on their honeymoon, they've had a great time, they've come back, and then a week later, one of them finds out that their spouse has been unfaithful. They've betrayed them. And it's through that lens that I think that the unfaithfulness of Israel, I, I think we can see why God would be upset. This is, this is actually not just an act of idolatry to God. This is a painful act of adultery. And so he is upset. He is angry. He is jealous for his people. And I think the reaction from God, therefore, is, is a lot more understandable. And when Moses hears all of this, how does he react? Well, he's, he, he pleads for mercy for his people. He intercedes for them. And we read that God relents. Which is something that I find baffling and wonderful. I, I think his anger can make us really uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about it. We, we'd much rather focus on his, his love and his mercy. But another thing that I think brings us comfort is that we like to sing about his constantness, how he is unchanging, how he, we use big words, don't we, like omniscient, to say he is all-knowing. He has a plan for us. And yet here, like that, he seems to have changed his mind. I think actually that should be an encouragement to us, um, particularly in our month of prayer this month. What we're seeing here is that prayer is used to change the course of history. And God intends, just as, just as with Moses' prayer, God intends for our prayers to change the world. And, and I think that, in, in, in a sense, is the mystery of, of the sovereignty of God, one who is unchanging, one who has a plan, who, one who does not change his mind, and yet, he is, I am, who I am, he is eternal, and yet he allows Moses to influence him through prayer. And he extends the same invitation to us. If, if you like, prayer is the exception to the rule. He allows us to influence his story, influence our own stories through prayer. And he is still a powerful God. I guess that is the the, the baffling part of it is he still seems to marry these two things together in a way that I can't completely understand. He is, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He does have a plan for creation and a plan for you and a plan for me. And yet I am able to come to him and pray and change his mind. I can pray and possibly I could pray for something to happen that would not have otherwise happened if I hadn't prayed. I can pray to stop something from happening that would have happened if I didn't pray. If Moses did not step in, Israel would have been destroyed. And, and that's the relationship that we're invited into, where we have the ability to change his mind. He chooses to bring us into that, um, which, which I think is wonderful. And, and the other thing that I love about this uh, picture of Moses interceding for his people is I think it gives us a great model for prayer. We've, as part of our month of prayer, we've done a, a number of videos on praying like different people in the Bible. We've had praying like Paul and praying like Elijah and praying like David. So if you like, this is my two-minute version of praying like Moses. 
he starts by appealing to the mercy of God. And he focuses his prayer on the promises that God has already made to his people. And he focuses on God's faithfulness so far. And that is a great way for us to pray as well. If we want to come to God and ask for something, we can start by appealing to him and his character and his mercy. We can focus on the promises that he has already made and remind ourselves of them as well. And of course, we can focus on his faithfulness because he is a faithful God. There we go. That's my two-minute praying like Moses. I think the other thing I would really like to to get across is if we look at Moses' behavior, and I'm not going to be able to read out the rest of the chapter, um, we will see that Moses doesn't think that God's anger is unjustified. What we'll actually see is Moses is just as angry himself. And so he goes down the mountain to, to confront the people, basically. And as he goes down, he casts the tablets aside and they are broken, uh, which is a great bit of symbolism there. The, the tablets are broken just as the covenant has been broken. The covenant will need to be renewed later on in chapter 34, and, and so the tablets will also have to be remade. But Moses is angry. And in fact, the writer uses exactly the same phrase to describe his anger as he has already used to describe God's anger. It says that Moses' anger burned hot. And he confronts Aaron. And he basically, he, he gets Aaron to explain himself. He is the one who's been left in charge. He is the one who must answer for what has happened. And I really wish Aaron did better here. He, he's not really having any of it. He starts by blaming the Israelites for everything that happened. He doesn't take any responsibility for himself. And then he sort of implies that the calf was miraculously forged in the fire. Let's have a look. In, in verse 22, he says, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. He's like, Moses, why are you coming to me? You know what they're like. These are bad people. These are evil people. Of course they made a statue of a calf. Go and talk to them. And then he doesn't stop there. He, he, in verse 24, he's, he's, he's talking about the golden earrings and things that he's gathered together. And he says, I threw them into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> what? You're rewriting history a little bit there, I think, Aaron. You fashioned it with a graving tool. We read that in verse 4. But he's, he's like, Moses, I don't know what happened. We were, we were collecting up some earrings, as, as you do, and I threw them into the fire, and then miraculously there was this calf here. I don't know what happened. It was, certainly wasn't me. We read that the people have broken loose. They are out of control. And to be honest, I think Aaron's a bit out of control if he thinks Moses is going to buy any of that. The rebellion needs to be stopped. That's what this amounts to, a rebellion against God. And so the calf is destroyed completely. We read that Moses has it ground up and burnt and scattered into the water. It's made really, really clear that the calf has been destroyed completely. And I think that's kind of to make a point to the Israelites and to us. And the point is that the things that we covet, the things that the Israelites have been worshipping, is so weak. It's so temporary. And when we compare that to the strength um, of our eternal God, 
it seems so foolish that we should be worshipping a cow. And and so once Moses has dealt with that, he stands at the edge of the camp and he asks the people a simple question. He said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. He's saying, are you on the side of the rebellion? Are you on the side of this idol that I've just crushed? Are you on the side of sin? Or are you going to choose to be on God's side? It's a choice that the people have to make. And, and they're basically offered a chance to repent. Even if they've sinned, they are offered the chance to, to choose God's side again, to reaffirm their place. And then we read that the people who have repented are instructed to go about the camp and kill all of the unrepentant idol worshippers. And we read that 3,000 people were killed. And again, this, this is challenging. This seems really brutal. You might think it's harsh or even evil. But we must remind ourselves that sin is brutal. And sin is evil. And I think we see that in the garden, that the ultimate consequences of sin in, in the garden when God created Adam and Eve, we see the ultimate consequence of sin is death. And we see that here. We, we would love to, and we often try to downplay sin. We so often try to minimize it, maybe even trivialize it. And I think, actually, that's one of the greatest tricks of the enemy, is making us think that sin is not so bad. Temptation tells us it's, it's harmless. What's the worst that could happen? And again, that's familiar language to us. If you look in the garden, in, in Genesis, you see the snake saying very similar things. He said, did God really say not to eat from the tree? Surely you won't die. And that's how it starts. What's the worst that could happen? Why doesn't God want you to eat from the tree? Doesn't he want you to be happy? Just eat the fruit. Go on. You deserve it. Take. Sin needs to be stopped. And that's why these people are cut out of Israel. Very literally and physically removed from God's nation. And, and this is done so that they are not able to lead other people astray. No other Israelites, hopefully, will be turned away from God by these people. And, and once all of this is done, Moses goes back up the mountain again to speak to God. And that's where I'm going to read the final bit of this chapter. So from verse 30, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place where, about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, 
I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And if there was anyone, any doubt, the one that Aaron made, right there at the end. So as we, we finish this chapter, Moses goes back up the mountain and he, he wants to atone for the sin of his people. He realizes that what he has done so far is not enough. He must atone for what has happened. And it says that he offers his place in the book of life. He's basically offering himself, his life, as a sacrifice for the people so that they can be forgiven. And we read that God refuses. He says he will blot out those who have sinned. And he promises that day will come. In the meantime, Moses is supposed to carry on leading the people. And God sends an angel to go before them. And then we read that judgment comes in part. The partial judgment, if you like, comes in the form of a plague. And the full judgment is postponed until the day when I visit, as he says. And I think that's quite remarkable. We, we see that God is merciful to his people. He spares them the full judgment for a time. And he grants them an angel. If you remember, the very, the very way this started at the beginning is they wanted a God who would go before them, even though they already had one. And he sends them an angel. He gives them exactly what they asked for. And I think, as I've, we've kind of already touched on it on a couple of times, these stories can be quite difficult when we read them in the Bible, can't they? Uh, and I think particularly if we take them in isolation, parts of it can make us feel uncomfortable. The, the anger of God and his willingness to destroy his people. The fact that Moses instructs um, the Levites to kill 3,000 people. We, that can be uncomfortable. That can be difficult. Um, and, and one question I would ask is, if this was the only story that we had to learn about God's character, what would we think? And I think actually that can be helpful. Because in this story, it underlines the need for someone else to step in and to intercede for us. We want to talk about a God who is just and, and merciful and gracious and loving. Some of those words appeared in the songs we sang earlier. I don't think we sang, sing many songs about his anger or the plagues or when he got 3,000 people killed. We'd, we'd kind of like to forget about the parts where he gets angry, wouldn't we? And, and maybe it would be easier if when we get that difficult question at work or at university or wherever we are, where someone asks about a passage like this, it would be easy if we could just explain it away. And be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Exodus, I know that one, yeah. Well, that's actually the Old Testament. God's a bit different now. We actually worship the God of the New Testament. He's, he's changed. He doesn't really do the plague thing anymore. That's good, isn't it? Doesn't really go for that. He's mellowed out a bit now. He's nice. Actually, no, we worship the God of the Bible, the whole Bible. The same God that we're reading about this morning is the same God that we were worshiping today. And he is still judge. He is committed to justice. He is committed to glory, his glory. He is committed to holiness. 
And if you like, that's, that's kind of part of the problem, that Israel was supposed to be his holy nation. They were supposed to be set apart from everyone else, but they weren't acting like it. He's just as committed to these things as he is committed to love and mercy and grace. And for there to be justice, there must be judgment. He cannot just cancel out the sin of the people. Sin cannot just be forgotten. And so judgment is actually the proper and the reasonable response here. And Moses knows that. That's why Moses goes up the mountain again, to mediate one more time with God. And notice, Moses is a great model for us in this passage. Notice that Moses doesn't try and minimize the sin. He takes full responsibility. He owns all of it. He doesn't try and blame anyone else. He understands the severity of the sin. He understands that the consequences of sin is death. And he kind of has a go at his own system for atoning. Moses lives in a time where he hasn't yet read Leviticus because he hasn't written it down yet. And so the rules for um, establishing the atoning sacrifices haven't been written down, and he's, he's not got that far. And, and so he kind of has a go himself. And if you remember last week, Duncan had a go at trying to get us excited about the law. And I'm going I'm to give it another go, because I think the law can be exciting. And I think the law is so useful and interesting, and we can use it to apply to different parts of the Bible and different stories like these to understand more about what's happening, to understand more about God's character and who he is. Um, and so we're going to take a very quick look at Leviticus 16, uh, where we had the rules for the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, as the name might suggest, is the day where the people atone for their sin. They, they try and repent and, and seek atonement. And it, there's lots of different things going on in, in that ceremony, but it, part of it involves two goats. And they're both brought before God to the entrance of his tent and presented to him. And one of them is a sin offering. It is sacrifice to the Lord. And the other one is spared. It's allowed to live and it's sent out into the wilderness away from the dwelling place of God. So one experiences death and the other is separated from God. And this is done as a way of atoning for sin. And crucially, the goats have done nothing wrong. I mean, that much is hopefully obvious. The goats have nothing to do with the sin of the people. They are blameless. And so they're able to take on the burden of sin. That's kind of how it works. Because they have done nothing wrong, they are able to take on the burden of the sin. And that's actually where we get the, the term scapegoat from. If you're reading in an NIV, you'll see the second goat is referred to as a scapegoat. It takes on the blame for something that it did not do. And you're probably thinking, Robin, it's getting a bit late. My Bible says this story is called the golden calf, and now you're talking about two goats. Um, well, I think this is important because it shows us why Moses cannot atone. It shows us why God refuses. It's very noble of him to try, but Moses has his own sin that he needs to deal with. He cannot be a perfect 
sinless sacrifice. And so very simply, he is not worthy to bear the sin of his people. When we see Moses acting as mediator in this story and offering himself on behalf of his people as a sacrifice, we get a revelation of the true mediator that was to come. We see that in part in the person of Moses. We know that another man would come to mediate on behalf of his people. We've been able to read as much in, in his word. We, we know how this part of the story continues into the New Testament. We know what comes later on. One who was perfect would come. One who was blameless and without sin came to live amongst his people and he did not have any sin of his own that he needed to atone for. Jesus is that perfect mediator who constantly intercedes for God, with God for us on our behalf. And, and this is pretty cheesy, but if Jesus is your hero, you won't be disappointed when you meet him, just as I was when I met Aaron in this passage. Moses has offered himself to atone for the sin of his people. And Jesus does exactly the same thing when he willingly comes to live amongst his people. And then just as Moses climbed the mountain, Jesus climbs a hill and dies on a cross at the top of it. And, and this time Christ was worthy of bearing our sin. He was without guilt. And so he did. He lived, he lived a perfect life. He didn't commit any sin. And so he was the perfect man to atone for the sin of us, the sin of his people, in a way that Moses was never going to be able to atone for the sin of his own people, or the sin of Israel. And, and we see, again, there's so much similarity here. When, when Jesus hangs on the cross at Calvary, he was blotted out as Moses asked to be. And when he was blotted out, so was our sin. That is the good news, that our sin is blotted out with Jesus. And, and just as Moses calls for the forgiveness of his people, when Jesus hangs on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. And so he experiences death. And he experiences separation from God, just as the goats do. Separation from his heavenly Father. Sometimes I think that might actually be the more painful bit for Jesus. This is the only time that we see that God the Son and God the Father have been separated. He experiences all that on our behalf so we do not have to. He atones for our sin and he pays for it with his life. And I, I don't want to move on too quickly from, from this but I, I guess I just want to remind us that we also live in a new covenant. And, and the atonement for our sin has already been made. And so all that's left for us to do is to come to him and, and to worship him in a true sense. But also, if we look a little bit at the, the kind of loose structure that I've gone through here, we see that the sin occurs in the early verses of the chapter. And then it's very important that Moses goes and confronts the sin and then he ensures that the sin is repented of 
and then the atonement happens at the end. But we live in a time where the atonement has already happened, and sadly, the sin often is inevitable. All of us sin. So we need to make sure that we focus on confronting sin and repenting of our sin. And we should rejoice in the fact that we have a saviour who loves us and has already died for us and has already atoned for us so that we do not have to. And we can know him and we can know the presence of God and we won't have to be separated from him.